Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Growing up with siblings, you spend a lot of time worrying about what's fair. Remember, it was the uh, summer after my senior year. I was getting ready to go to college, and I was trying to convince my parents that I needed a computer for school, which is a weird thing to say because it makes me sound simultaneously old and young, depending on where you are. Because right? some of you hear that, and you're like, a computer for college? I took a chisel, and I carved my notes into a slab of rock like Moses. What do you need a computer for? And others of you hear that and go, how would you even get through college without a computer? How do you get through anything without a computer? Why did you not already have one? Were your parents dinosaurs? Yes, my dad is a T-Rex. <laughs> At least he sounded like one when he walked through the house and the floor would shake. <sighs> so I lost this debate. And so when I graduated, I went off to college. My parents gave me a gift, a wallet with $20 in it. My sister's two years younger than me. She graduates, the graduation parent, the present that they give her, brand new laptop. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Like, that is not fair at all. And my dad says, yeah, we like her better than you. I get it. I've lived with me my whole life. I know what this is. I wasn't surprised by that. But in the moment, I was frustrated because it didn't seem fair. And I was so focused on what I didn't get that I failed to appreciate what I did. See, along the way, I forgot that my parents didn't have to give me a gift at all. I didn't deserve that. I hadn't earned that. They had no requirement to give me anything, and yet they did. My parents graciously and generously gave me a gift, and rather than appreciate that gift, I grumbled at that gift because the gift that they generously, graciously gave my sister seemed a whole lot more generous and gracious than the gift that they generously, graciously gave me. You ever been in that situation? Seeing what somebody else did, seeing what they got, seeing what they received, Kind of soured your mood? No, just me? Cool. <laughs> Self-interest is the enemy of maturity. And there is nothing that will stunt your growth in Christ Jesus more effectively than focusing on yourself. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, uh, we're going to camp out in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, as we continue in our series, Rooted. And once again, we're going to see a farming parable from Jesus. See, Jesus has this incredible ability to take simple, relatable, easy-to-understand images and use them to teach us profound, complex spiritual truths. And one of the favorite images that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels is the image of agriculture, farming, plants. 
And by choosing this particular image almost always as a reference to us, Jesus is communicating something very clearly. What is the predominant thing that plants do, that they are known for? Plants grow. And so by regularly equating us to plants, what Jesus is doing is he's communicating God's expectation that God expects that we are going to grow. Because the life cycle of a plant consists primarily of three things, growing, transformation, and replication. See, a healthy crop, a good crop, it doesn't just grow, it reproduces. So, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, so as we saw last week, with a parable, pretty much every element tends to represent something. There are three primary elements in this parable. The master, the servants hired first, and the servants hired last. Now, the master represents God. Shocking, I know. What would you do without me to explain these really complex ideas that nobody would ever have come to the conclusion of on their own because it's not blatantly obvious? But the master here, the farmer, the, the gardener, the owner of the land, he, this is God. And this parable takes place around the time of the harvest. Now, harvest was an exciting and chaotic time for farmers. They've planted the seed. They've tended the soil, and then the harvest comes. And everything that they've been working towards, everything that they've been focused on, all that they have been doing for the entire season of that crop is dependent, is resting on that harvest. That's their focus. That's their goal. From their investment of time, energy, and resources to the preparation, to the work, to the waiting, everything the farmer has done has been to lead to this moment, the time of the harvest. It's all about the harvest. But when the harvest comes, everything goes crazy because the farmer has a limited window of time to bring the harvest in before it spoils. So what the farmers would do is they would go into the marketplace. They would hire workers, and they would send them out to help bring the harvest in to ensure that they got all of it. And so that's where our story begins. Farmer goes to the marketplace. He finds some workers. They agree to work for a denarius a day. A denarius was the standard day's wage for a common laborer. He hires them. He sends them out into the field. The workers in this parable represent us. Now, here's where things get fun. Last week, we looked at the parable of the soils. Last week, we were dirt. This week, we're workers. That's an upgrade. What if these parables are linked not just in that they're both agriculturally themed. What if there's more to what Jesus is saying here? See, God is in the business of transformation. Where there is nothing, God creates. Where there is something, God transforms. All of human history has been built around God turning ground into groundskeepers. Human history began with this, right? God made Adam out of the dirt, and then God put Adam in charge of the dirt. Last week, we were the dirt. 
And God plants the seed of the gospel in our hearts. And by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, that gospel seed grows to life. And it begins to mature. And it produces fruit. And when the seed is rooted in the soil of our hearts, we are changed by it. And so God transforms soil into citizens. Because that's who the laborers are. The laborers are citizens of the kingdom of God. They are Christians. They are you and me. So God grew us out of the dirt, called us out of the dirt, and then sends us back to work the dirt. God sends us back to work the very fields we used to be. So think about this as we get into the parable and start unpacking it. The people that you invest in, that you share the gospel with, that you show the love and the grace of Jesus to the people that you serve, the people that you care for, the people you minister to. The soil that you tend today may be your coworker tomorrow. Because God turns harvest into harvesters. That's the work he's doing in us. Verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, go into the vineyard too. So what would happen during this time is there are people who didn't own land at all or people who owned land but not enough to sustain and provide for their families. And so what they would do is they would go to the marketplace to supplement their income. They would, work the, they would hire themselves out as workers. So people who were looking for work would go to the marketplace. People who were looking for workers would go to the marketplace. So at the harvest time, farmers would go out. They would hire workers. And that's what the farmer does. At the beginning, early in the day, at the beginning of the day, he hires workers and he sends them out. Now, the work day at this time was 12 hours long, and it began at sunrise, which in Palestine is 6 a.m. So that's the first group gets hired and sent out at 6 a.m. Then, though, the farmer goes back at the third hour. Well, how they counted time at this point was they started at sunrise, and then they counted the number of hours after that. Sunrise, 6 a.m., the third hour, 9 a.m. So at 9 a.m., the farmer goes and he hires more workers. But this time, they don't agree on a specific price. He just says, go and work and I'll pay you whatever's right. And he goes back again at noon, 3, and 5 p.m. Now, what you'll notice when you read the text is that there is no indication anywhere that the farmer needed more workers. It doesn't say he went to the marketplace to find more people to hire. It said he went to the marketplace, and he saw that there were still people who needed work. And so he hired them. Again, and again, because the farmer is generous, because the farmer is gracious, he continues to hire people. Every time he goes to the market, he sees people who need work, so he gives them work. And it's kind of absurd by the end. Because he hires people at the 11th hour from a 12-hour workday. 5 p.m., he hires people to go to work when they can't work after 6 p.m. Because it's really hard to bring in a harvest when the sun is down and it's dark. So there's people that he hired that go out, they work for a grand total of maybe an hour, and then they clock out. 
But he does it anyway. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each of them received a denarius. Now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So at the end of the day, all the, far, all the workers line up to get paid. And the farmer pays the last to get hired first. And they receive a denarius, a full day's wage. And they were shocked. No one was expecting that. They weren't expecting to get a day's wage for showing up right before it was time to leave. But the farmer is generous, and he gives them the wage of an entire day, even though they barely worked an hour. So then what happens is the other workers, they start adjusting their expectations. They start doing math in their head. Right? Oh, they, got, they worked one hour, got one day's wage. I worked 12 hours. I should get then 12 days' wages. Look at how generous the farmer is. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to Vegas. It's a long trip from Palestine. That's where our story takes a turn. Because each of the workers gets paid the same amount. The worker who was hired at sunrise, who worked all day for 12 hours through the heat of the day, the one that produced more than all the others, who worked harder than all the others, gets paid the same as the dude that showed up and goes, hey, I'm here. What do you, oh, it's time to leave? Okay. Who didn't even break a sweat, and he pays them the same amount. How do you think that goes over with the guys who got hired first? Here's the hint, not good. Right? So what do they do? They start to grumble. What do you think this is? You can't pay them the same as you paid us. We worked hard for you all day. Look at all that we did. That guy didn't do anything. He barely picked up a tool before it was time to be done. It's not fair. It's not right. You can't do that. Let's just be honest. How many of us, don't cheat and look ahead, how many of you agree with the workers hired first? You can put your hands up. Mine are up. That's fine. See? It's way up here. It's okay. Right? It's right. Guys, this is a church, not a library. It's okay to respond. It's okay to laugh. All right? Right? We're not like trying to... It's not a museum here. We're like, shh. No. It's okay. Even if what I say is not funny, just laugh so that I feel better about myself. I don't care if you're laughing at me. I just care that you laugh. It makes me feel good. <laughs> oh. Yeah, me too. The farmers, the workers who were hired last, their frustration seems reasonable, seems justified. So let's see what happens. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this, one, to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is a sad parable. 
because it reveals the shallow pettiness of our hearts. These workers who were hired first, they were happy to be hired, happy to work, happy to get paid. They were happy until they saw what other people got. So let's ask this. Did the farmer cheat the workers who were hired first? No. Did he deceive them? No. Did he wrong them in some way? Did he take something that was theirs? No. Did he pay them exactly what they were promised? Yes. Did the farmer have to hire them at all? They had work and would feed their families and provide for their families because the farmer graciously chose to give them a job. And rather than being grateful, they grumble. And here's what they're really grumbling about. This is the sad part of the story. All these workers are from the same town. These are people who are all in the same situation. They are struggling to get by. They're living hand to mouth. And the workers who got hired first are begrudging the farmer for being generous with the workers who were hired last because that means the workers who were hired last, they got to eat. They got to provide for their families. They got to do okay that day. They work with these guys. They stand around with these guys every day hoping and praying to get hired and they're upset because the farmer chooses to bless them. How self-absorbed do you have to be to complain when someone else gets blessed. Now we can say, it's not about the money. It's about the principle. Right? That is a self-righteous hill that we love to die on. It's not about the money. It's the point of the thing. You don't do this. It's bad business practice. Guess what? Jesus isn't teaching a business course. Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. Those two things, very different. And yet sometimes in American culture, we tend to confuse them. Does a farmer not have the right to do what he wants with his money? Does he not have the right to be generous where he wants to be generous? But see, we get so caught up on this principle of fairness and on people getting what they deserve, and we put our stake in the ground. We say, i got to fight for this. i got to defend this. I'm going to stand up for this because it's not right. People should get what they deserve. Let me tell you a secret. When you fight for what people deserve, when you fight for things, people getting what they deserve in any situation, here's what you're actually fighting for. You are fighting for your right to go to hell. Because if you get what you deserve, that's where we all end up. Okay? So here's the deal. The wage of sin is death. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wage of sin is death. What that means is that you and I went to the marketplace to look for work, and sin came along and said, hey, I got a job. I'll hire you. We said, okay, what do you pay? He goes, I pay in death. And we said, cool, I'll take the job. And each and every one of us willfully went to work for sin. We chose to work for sin, and the day comes to an end, and we get paid in the death that we deserve. You really want to fight on that hill? Is that really where you want to stay? Because honestly, if we're really being honest about it, the fact is not a principle. It's hypocrisy that exists in our hearts. Because we want grace for ourselves, grace for our loved ones, but want everybody else to get what they deserve. 
No, it's okay for Jesus to give me that grace. That's fine, but he shouldn't give it to that guy. How self-absorbed do we have to be to grumble and complain that God chooses to be generous and gracious? Reminded of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Of all the nations on earth, God chose them to be his people. God freed them from slavery, rescued them from Pharaoh, delivered them across the Red Sea, and provided for them in the desert. Okay? Like, it's the part of the story that nobody seems to focus on a whole lot. It's an entire nation of people wandering in the desert, which by definition means there's not a lot of water and there's almost no food. And he feeds them and gives them water every single day in the desert, an entire nation of people God provides for their needs. Every day. And what do they do? They complain because the miracle of God's daily provision in the desert. I'm going to get hung up on that for a bit. In the desert is not diverse enough. They wanted a more variety of meals. Manna from heaven, quail, it's not enough. I need other stuff too. And they actually, these people, they go so far as to say, we were better off as slaves. Let that sink in for a second. Wandering in the desert, being miraculously fed and provided for, we were better off as slaves. That is how holistically sin warps our minds. They weren't focused on all that God had done for them. They witnessed the ten plagues, the miraculous power and glory of God being demonstrated. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Like, that's just like an equally, like, okay, let's just show off a little bit here. You're going to part the water, that's fine. We're make the land dry while you do it, just so your feet don't get muddy. That's next level. They walked across that. They experienced God's power, his provision, his glory, and yet they complained because what they do is what we so often do. We evaluate the goodness of God based on our circumstances rather than evaluating our circumstances based on the goodness of God. And what happens to them? They don't get to go to the promised land. God doesn't allow them in. Think about that. See, that seems like a harsh punishment. That seems pretty severe. All they did was complain, and God's going to make them wander in the wilderness for 40 years and not allow them into paradise? It's not severe. That's how, that is how offensive God finds complaining. That is how absurd and destructive our complaining is. The nation of Israel being rescued from being slaves in Egypt, delivered through wilderness into a promised land, is the physical representation of what happens in our spiritual lives, where we were rescued from sin, led through this life into the paradise that God has in store for us. What do you think it means that the people that God was delivering from captivity into salvation, complaining, didn't get allowed in? Is that something you really want to play with? That's something you really want to toy with. Ah, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not just a small complaint. You know what? It doesn't matter. I'm not complaining at God. I'm not complaining about God, so it's okay. It doesn't matter. 
the fact that we can utter a complaint at all in light of all that God is and all that God has done for us is utterly and completely offensive to him. Read through Scripture. You read through the Bible, what you'll see is that in the eyes of God, grumbling and complaining is just as offensive and sinful as adultery or murder. It's the big deal. I'm not hurting anyone. When you complain about anything, you are assaulting the infinite goodness of a holy God. It doesn't matter who you're complaining about. It's my, my complaining about God. It's my coworker, right? They're so annoying. They chew their food so loud. It's my neighbor who parks their car so I can't get out of my driveway very well. It's that guy in front of me who doesn't know how to drive the speed limit no matter how much I honk my horn at him. It's my spouse. It's my kids. They don't know to listen. They don't seem to understand. Look, I get it. I give my wife more reason to complain than anyone can imagine. Right? I live with me. I know what that is. When you complain about anything, what you are declaring is that all that God is and all that God has done is not good enough for me to be happy. You're not focused on how God has provided for you in the past. You're not looking at what God is leading you to. You're focusing on what you don't like in your current situation. When you're complaining about anything, you are declaring that God, though he may be good, is just not good enough for you. Is that really something that you want to say? Over and over and over, the Bible warns us about the dangers of grumbling and complaining, and it is time, church, that we stopped venting on Facebook and we started listening to Jesus. Grumbling is not a light and insignificant thing. It is an infinite offense against an infinitely good God, and he does not take it lightly. So what leads to the grumbling in this parable? Comparison. Comparison is the birthplace of envy and the death of joy. Comparison will lead you to grumble, to complain, and to any number of other sins in your life. Comparison is one of the things that will destroy your relationship or damage your relationship or at the very least hinder your relationship with Jesus more than pretty much anything else. Because here's the problem, church. When we compare... We always compare to the wrong thing. Because when we compare, we're not looking at the right place. We're looking at the people around us. We compare horizontally. Right? And so when I compare, I look at somebody else and I go, hey, I'm better at this than them. That's more of a hypothetical, not a whole lot of things that I'm better at than people. But in this hypothetical, I compare myself to someone who I'm better at something. I feel pride, sin. I look at someone who's better at something that I am. Those are easy to find. Insecurity, inadequacy, and ultimately, a rejection of who God created me to be. 
a lack of satisfaction with what God made me to be and the gifts that God gave me, sin. I compare myself to someone who has something that I don't, has something that I want, has more than I do. Jealousy. Envy. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. I should have that. I work harder than them. My reports are better than them. I've been here longer than them. I should get that promotion. I should get that raise. I should sin. Because when we compare ourselves, we're always comparing ourselves to other people. When we compare, we should be comparing ourselves to Jesus. Because when you compare yourself to Jesus, you see how sinful you are. When you compare yourself to Jesus, you see how broken and wretched and depraved you are. When you compare yourself to Jesus, you realize how bad your sin is. But because what becomes really clear when you compare yourself to perfection is how utterly and completely perfect we are not. You will never see yourself more clearly than when you compare yourself to Jesus. And you realize how far from the mark you actually are. And in that realization, in that understanding, you begin to appreciate the depth of his love for you. That he sees that brokenness, that he sees that ugliness and that pettiness. He sees how wildly and incredibly imperfect you and I are. And he chooses, not because he has to, not because he owes us anything, he chooses to love us through it. It is only when we recognize the depth of our own sin and depravity that we can begin to appreciate the significance of His love and of His grace. Church, your sin is so much worse than you think. Little sins, insignificant sins. Just complaining that something didn't go your way. Just venting because you're frustrated and stressed out. Is a sin against an infinitely holy God. And any wrong against an infinitely holy God is horrific in its own right. Your sin is so much worse than you think. But the good news of the gospel is that his grace is so much greater than you can imagine. And while your sin may be great, it is nothing compared to the grace that God pours out on us. It is nothing compared to the love that he pours out on us in loving us and choosing us in calling us his own, in making us his children despite all of that brokenness. See, what Jesus is teaching us in this parable is that the salvation of God is given equally, but it is distributed unevenly. What that means is that every child of God, everyone who belongs to Jesus, everyone who gives their life to him, surrenders to him, will receive the salvation of God. That is a gift that none of us deserve. And that salvation is offered equally to all of God's children. God gives his grace to all his kids. But some of those kids need a little more grace than others. And that is not something that we should complain about. 
that is something that we should rejoice in. Because we have a God who is generous in his distribution of grace. We have a God who continues to pour out grace far beyond what we could expect, far beyond what we deserve. We should celebrate the fact that no one is too far gone. No one is too broken, too messed up, too lost for the grace and love of God to reach them. Because if we truly understood ourselves, if we held a biblical heart, you look at the writers of the gospel, you look at their understanding, and they all share the same thinking, I'm just about the worst sinner ever. Paul says, I actually is. I'm the chief amongst sinners. It's one thing I questioned him on, because he hadn't met me. God routinely saves the worst of us to give hope to the rest of us. And yet we have the audacity to begrudge his generosity. Think about this. I want you to imagine the worst person in all of human history, whoever you would think that person to be, most vile, unredeemable human being, whether it's Jeffrey Dahmer, Hitler, Bin Laden, how would you feel if God saved them? How would you practically, realistically feel about sharing the tree of life with them for eternity? A little part of you kind of recoil from that? Step back, no, 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 not them, not that person. There, that's, no, no. It's okay for him to save me despite my depravity, but not them. That's too much. That is how shocked we are meant to be by grace. Grace is a shocking thing. Grace is an offensive thing. And grace is given as God desires to give it, not as we think that he should. Grace is given by the sovereign desire of the king who gives it, not by the democratic vote of his people who receive it. And if there are people that we look at and go, that's too much, too far gone, too... There's a problem in our hearts. And if we can stay of ourselves, think of ourselves, believe about ourselves, I'm a good person. I live a good life. I'm not perfect now, but I'm a good person. The only reason you can say that is you haven't spent enough time looking at Jesus. Because anyone who'd focused on Jesus would recognize how untrue those words are of them, fundamentally. See, when Jesus calls us to him, he's not just calling us to come to him, he's calling us to grow in him. You want to grow in Jesus? You want to mature in Jesus? First, the most important thing you can do, never take your eyes off the grace of God. See, grace is not about fairness. Grace is not about getting what we deserve. Grace is the joy of unfair. Grace is the joy of not getting what we deserve because we know what that is. The eternal wrath of God for our sin. Grace is God's gift that we don't get that grace is this incredible life-transforming thing. And the more you fix your eyes on grace, the more you cling to grace. And the more you cling to grace, the more you grow in grace. Because the more you grow in grace, the more you realize how deeply you need it. And those who have received the unbelievable, amazing grace of God never begrudge Him giving it to others as well. 
They rejoice that God would give it, even to people so unworthy as them. God pours out his amazing grace on us. And in every day, and every moment, we're given a choice. Gratitude or grumbling. One will pull us from the arms of God. One will draw us deeper into him. Choose gratitude. In fact, I want to give you a challenge this week. One week. Do not utter a single complaint. Don't vent. Don't blow off steam. Don't criticize. For one week, not a single grumble or complaint leaves your lips. And when you feel like complaining, when you feel like grumbling, when you feel like protesting because it's just not fair and it's just not right and why deserve better, every time you feel like that, instead of expressing the complaint, stop, take a breath, and look at the grace of God and remember who God is and remember what God has done and remember how he provided for you in Egypt. Remember how he took care of you in the wilderness and remember where he's leading you to and remember the grace that you have received and choose in that moment not to express a complaint but to express gratitude for all God is after everything that God has done for us, after everything that he's given us, that Jesus would leave heaven for you, that Jesus would climb up onto a cross for you, that Jesus would take your sin and my sin on his shoulders, and that he would bear the weight of the wrath of God for us. Placing in the place of our sin, he would give us his goodness and his righteousness and his worthiness in the eyes of God. After everything that he's given us, how could a complaint ever reasonably leave our lips. We have eternal life and salvation and the only way we could even muster a negative word is that we've taken our eyes off of the grace of God. We've forgotten all that he is and all that he has done and we're choosing to focus only on the thing that we don't like. One week, I want to challenge you to not complain about anything for any reason and instead every time you feel like complaining channel all that energy and all that focus into expressing gratitude to God for all that he has given and done for you and see how it changes your life because this church is amazing grace the, the grace that saves us is also the grace that grows us the maturity and the depth and the growing we have in Jesus isn't something that we do for Jesus. It's something that Jesus does in us by his grace. Jesus doesn't just call us to grow. He does the growing for us. When we fix our eyes on him and we focus on him and the more you see Jesus' grace, the more you experience it, the more you recognize your need for it, the more you will long to know and to serve and to live for the one who gives it. So choose gratitude. Remind yourself every single day when you wake up, you woke up because God graciously allowed you to wake up. The breath that you breathe, you breathe because God gave it to you to breathe. And everything that you have is from him. And so when you remember that, you live in all that he has given with a gratitude for all he is in your hearts.
how could we who have been given so much ever complain that something isn't good enough for us? We get to celebrate that today. We're going to go out to the beach. Weather permitting, we're going to see people who are giving their lives to Jesus. We have like 20 people signed up right now to make a public declaration that they are letting go of themselves and will live for him. Letting go of yourself means you don't complain. Because you only complain when you're focused on yourself. You only complain when you're thinking about yourself. You only complain when you're about you. All complaint comes from a place of sin. And when we give our lives to Jesus, we die to that. And it's time that we started training ourselves to live in the newness of life that Jesus has done. That we start teaching ourselves gratitude over grumbling. And that we might stop to appreciate every single day the amazing grace that God gives us. That God died, laid down his life that we could live. This church is amazing grace. And this is what should be the defining characteristic and focus of our lives. So we talk about it. Now I'm going to pray about it. And then we're going to sing about it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for all that you are. And God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with an appreciation and a recognition of all that you've done. That we wouldn't get lost in the things that we don't like and the challenges and the frustrations of the day-to-day life that we live. That we wouldn't get caught up in fear and worry and anxiety, but that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would focus on you. Pray that you would give us a joy and a hope that allowed us to endure the struggles of this world with patience. That we might be grateful in all things. That we might remember you and focus on you in all things, God. Help us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Let our attitude be the same as his. To serve and to follow you with joy, regardless of our circumstances. Because no matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens to us today or tomorrow, you are still good. And if you are good, we have nothing to complain about. And we praise you this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.